Allah believes in Lebanese people believe in something. And we finally are able, we are able to be united under, under one flag, and it's the Lebanese flag, basically. Okay? There's no any political flag here. Something unprecedented is happening in Lebanon. Hundreds of thousands have taken to the streets from the north to the very south. After decades of corruption, stagnation, and an ineptitude by successive governments, people have had enough. But the final straw was a raft of taxes to try and tackle the country's mountains of debt. The proposal included a daily fee on WhatsApp and internet calls. And the response was loud, nationwide, and so far, unending. I'm James Haynes-Young, this is Beyond the Headlines, and this week we're looking at why Lebanon has erupted in protest. Demonstrations in Lebanon are not uncommon. In terms of big rallies, in 2005 over a million took to the streets to demand the end of Syrian occupation that had lingered after the civil war. A bit over half a million people protested in support of Syria. That was the last time major street protests saw massive sweeping changes in the country. Syria withdrew and the political situation totally shifted. In 2015, there were large protests against rubbish piling up in the streets. Thousands took part, but while the government did take action to remove the festering piles, the results didn't fix the crisis, which in many places is still lingering on. But this week has been different. Firstly, it's the scale. They're huge, they're spontaneous, and they're practically everywhere. Beirut is often the epicentre of large protests, but to see such rallies taking place in almost every Lebanese city, as well as in small villages and towns across the country, is something new. Second, they defy a rule that Lebanese leaders have for generations insisted is an unchangeable constant. Sectarianism. Perhaps the one thing that many people know about the small eastern Mediterranean country of four and a half million people with 18 registered sects is that it's divided. Although there's no official data, a rule of thumb is that the country is roughly one-third Shiite, one-third Sunni, and one-third Christian. Within those, there are subsects: Orthodox, Maronite, Catholic Christians, for example, as well as Druze. An unbridgeable gap between religious confessions has, the leaders insist, stopped the country moving to a secular system since the end of the civil war, itself a largely sectarian conflict. But this week, hundreds of thousands from every sector of society have joined the movement. On national TV, people interviewed in the streets were openly calling political leaders, including Hezbollah and Amal, thieves by name. An unthinkable move before now. President Michel Aoun is also being criticised openly. Officially, Lebanon has a law against criticism of the country's leader, and it is still applied. One of the big chants of the movement has been Kilon Yani Kilon. Everyone means everyone. We could do a whole episode about Hezbollah and the protests, and I won't focus on it too much here, but in recent years, the number of articles and analysis pieces saying that Lebanon is now lost to the control of the arms and political might of the Iranian-backed group has been increasing. While that's true that they have huge amounts of power and influence, the protests show that this group too is under pressure. In the past, protests against the government have often avoided openly criticising Hezbollah. 
They are known to clamp down brutally on dissent, and they also have their own systems and dynamics to foster local support. Remember that big chant? Well, one variant being used is Kilon Yani Kilon wa Hezbollah Wahed Minon. Everyone means everyone, and Hezbollah is one of them. Many people are saying that the climate of fear and malaise has been broken. It seems like the summer of Middle Eastern protests is continuing. Last week on Beyond the Headlines, we discussed the deadly protests in Iraq. So far, thankfully, there haven't been many deaths in Lebanon, and the situation is very different. A week in, the protests have already achieved a lot, but a lot more is needed. So what exactly do the people want? We have 40% of our people between the ages of 20 and 25 that are unemployed. Uh, people my age don't look forward to finding a job here. They look forward to finding a job outside. Yes, because I'm tired of my friends always leaving this country and finding jobs. And it's just disappointing that I have to travel actually to look for a job. So that's the main issue. That's the opinions of just a few Lebanese people who spoke to The National's video producer, Willie Lowry, this week. But let's rewind and talk about what's causing these protests. Lebanon is the third most indebted country in the world, after the United States and Japan. The government says it's serious about tackling the problem. But the country has experienced years of political stagnation. Nothing serious ever seems to get done. Inequality has risen rapidly in the last three decades, since the end of the country's 15-year civil war. Economic data shows that there have been periods of rapid growth, but much of that wealth has stayed in the hands of a few. By some measures, around 1% of the population has around 50% of the annual income. State services are patchy at best and expensive. There's no 24-hour electricity, health services are stretched, and mobile phone bills are some of the highest in the world. People have long been frustrated. While during the war, people fled fighting, today thousands of Lebanese emigrate every year in search of work, a life and a future. But this year, things have gone from bad to worse. Here's Wasim Rue, the former national editor of the Daily Star newspaper in Beirut and a current PhD student in politics at Edinburgh University. It has been very bad recently in Lebanon on all levels, uh, especially the socio-economic level. There was the shortage of dollars very recently. Uh, people were really afraid that uh, their currency will be devaluated. What, what we're seeing today is this culmination of uh, crises over the past years. So that's a bit of background on what's been happening. We'll talk more about this, but it gives you an idea of why the government's move on October 16th triggered such anger. Ministers met to discuss the 2020 state budget. They voted and approved a list of items. Among them, unannounced at that point, was a 20 cents daily tax on internet calling, a hike on VAT and other measures to raise money to tackle the government debt. Now the government is sitting down and seeing what it can do to raise more revenues. And uh, as usual, they're gonna, they, they were first planning to target the middle class and the poor class. The straw which broke the camel's back was this plan to uh, impose a WhatsApp fee. All these problems together have uh, led us to what we're witnessing now. These protests are not about a single issue caused by one decision. They represent the culmination of a generation of successive government policies. We have been living under a failed state, I would say, or a 
non-functioning government for years and years, and people were okay. Uh, you know, you have each party, each political party, which is mainly a sectarian party, has been uh, providing for its supporters, uh, providing jobs, uh, uh, financial benefits, etc. But this has really uh, become very difficult for politicians to achieve for so many reasons. Hezbollah is suffering from financial sanctions. Every every political party has been cornered now. The only solution that came out was to try to extract more money and more uh, impose more taxes on the lower classes and on the middle class. And people said, no, we're sorry, we can't. We can, we cannot take it anymore. We cannot give you our blind obedience in return for nothing. Worse, in return for taxes, additional taxes. Another thing that marks these protests out is how fast they got a government reaction. The government is often embroiled in crisis, but the leaders are very good at averting the collapse of their administrations, usually by cutting deals. So here's a quick timeline. The cabinet met on October 16th to discuss and pass the new taxes. The next day, a Thursday, people started gathering in Beirut. At first a few dozen, then a few hundred, then a few thousand. Suddenly, reports came in that in other areas, people were taken to the streets. Police and soldiers in Beirut moved to clear the protests. They've used batons, water cannon and tear gas. But when dawn broke on Friday people all over the country were still on the streets. And it continued through the day. Prime Minister Saad Hariri announced that he would address the nation. Remember, this is only 24 hours after the first people took to the streets. And many thought he might resign on the spot, collapsing government. Instead, he set himself a 72-hour deadline, that's until Monday, to get a package of reforms backed by his coalition government, or, he said, he'd take action. On the streets, nobody listened, and the protests grew. Again, on Friday night, there were clashes with police. But on Saturday morning, things in Beirut changed. Volunteers came down in the morning and started sweeping the streets, cleaning up glass from smashed windows and recycling bottles and cans. So I'm here in downtown Beirut, just a stone's throw from Martyrs Square. This is the epicenter of the protests. It's where thousands of people have been gathering every night now for three nights in a row. But it's an actually an amazing scene right now. There are dozens of people here cleaning up all of the debris from last night's protest. It's just a kind of informal public gathering, a, a civil service, if you would like, of protesters. They'll be back here tonight, but they want to clean up the streets during the day. Uh, it's an initiative we all took together uh, to clean up the, the mess we've done, all the little mess that happened, to show the government that we can do it. We can, uh, we can clean our own streets. Uh, we're responsible enough. As people began to gather for the day's protests, the mood was very different. Festive. The protests turned into a party that's lasted days. This wasn't the same everywhere, but after the initial few days, things have largely settled down into a more relaxed atmosphere. The army, who fought with protesters on the first two days, said that they wouldn't force protesters to disperse. We caught up with Mona Harb, the Associate Professor of Urban Studies and Politics at the American University of Beirut. We talked to her a bit about what's been happening in downtown Beirut and how this fits into a bigger picture in Lebanon. We're talking about citizens who 
have been taking a lot of pressure, economic, uh, social, uh, for years now, and who are paying taxes, who are contributing to uh, to uh, trying to improve the situation as they should as citizens. And you see a government that does not prioritize at all the public interest. You see a government that prioritizes their own interest and those of their allies and banks, and that completely disregards the demands of the ordinary dweller in Lebanon. What I can witness is that the protesters have so much frustration, so much despair, so much uh, anger that it's all coming out now in the streets. And that's why I was saying at the beginning, there's something cathartic about all this collective gathering. People go down because they just want to be around each other. Mona describes what she saw on the streets this week. The festive atmosphere remains and... They've become places where people have joined together, talking, sitting and making their voices heard. Yesterday, while I was walking around uh, the scenes of the protest, I even saw people who are sitting alone and reading a book. And, you know, I even went down just to walk around because staying in and watching all this on TV or following on it's on social media, you feel you're missing out on the vibe of that collective. There's something about being together in this, that togetherness, that's very, very important because you feel that you see the pain and the frustration of your fellow citizens across places, across cities, across class, across gender, across uh, across sexuality. I mean, th- that's a very strong togetherness that was much, very much needed. And people talk about the same thing, the difficulty of living here, their children emigrating, uh, uh, their future being blocked, uh, having a degree but not finding jobs, the wasta that happens in government, the fact that you need to know someone in a political party and be affiliated to that political party as a sectarian group to to have a future in this place, the refuse of, of all this, the attack on ecology and the environment. Mona also points out that people are well-versed on what the government's been doing. And people know this. People are informed. They are well aware. They are uh, conscious of uh, all these policies that the government is doing that is a direct attack on their livelihoods, on their rights to the city, to public space, to affordable housing, to a decent livelihood. And they are refusing it. They're uh, telling the government that we want policies for the majority, not for the few. So what's the government done in response? On October 21st, Cabinet met again and backed the Prime Minister's reform package ahead of his 72-hour deadline. This time, the WhatsApp fee was gone and there were no new proposed taxes. The Prime Minister said the government would fix everything, just give us time. But his move did little to stem the protests. In the days since, they've carried on. We're used to these kinds of speech. Every time, every single time, they just tell us, we're going to make changes, we're going to make it better, we're going to make it better, we're going to uh, reduce taxes, we're going to make you a better life. We've given him a chance and 10 chances for the entire establishment. So what comes next? Well, here's Wasim again. I think the main problem is people lack confidence in this ruling class. Whatever promises the government makes, uh, people will not believe them. People don't trust them anymore. I mean, I mean, the same people have been in power since the early 90s. And I mean, nothing has changed. And things are getting worse and worse every year. So there is no point in believing or trusting that these politicians 
this time will really deliver on their promises. Uh, they're saying, how can uh, a corrupt class uh, eradicate corruption? People in power, people, uh, I mean, the political parties which represent the government, you know, they won't easily give up their posts and positions. But if the protesters do manage to force the government to resign, will that lead to a change? Well, put simply, Lebanon doesn't have a single ruling party, as other Arab states have. No one single group has dominated power for years. It's been a coalition of powerful actors. It will therefore be them that decide the next administration. Here's Wasim breaking down what happens if Hariri did resign and collapse his cabinet. If the government resigns, uh, what will happen is that it will automatically become a caretaker government and uh, the president will have to call for binding consultations or uh, it means that parliamentary blocs will uh, meet with the president and will nominate a new prime minister, the candidate who wins the uh, bigger number or the highest number of votes will become the prime minister designate. Once a new, uh, once we have a prime minister designate, he has to put together a government. And here comes the type of the government. Is it a technocrat government or is it going to be a national unity government, which means a government representing all parties represented in parliament? And then once a government is put together, but I mean, this process could drag on forever. The last, the previous government, the government which is in power now, it took Hariri nine months to put together his government. Once the government is formed, it has to win the confidence of parliament. And we have to bear in mind that parliament is representative of the same political parties which are in power now. So it's a long process. He also points out that doing so might actually hinder the demands of the protesters. We will have a caretaker government which will rule for, uh, which might rule for months and months. Ministers feel more free, even more free to violate the rules. And, they do, uh, and the, the, the caretaker government does not meet, by the way. It rarely meets. Having a caretaker government uh, would, give, would give the politicians and the political parties the opportunity to even violate the rules even more and continue with this corrupt behaviour. So what about elections? Well, in that... The electoral law is the big issue. Some people are raising the issue of uh, a new electoral law, but you know, a new electoral law uh, would have to go into parliament again. And we have previous experiences where political parties spent years and years trying to come up with a new electoral law that only would fit them and, uh, and would guarantee that they would come back. I mean, in my opinion, to... Uh, come up with a specific set of demands. What electoral law do these people want? And continue protesting on a weekly basis or on a daily basis or every other day to pressure the, this ruling class to uh, pass a new electoral law. But I mean, again, it's a difficult battle because you would be asking them to kind of commit suicide, to pass an electoral law that would not guarantee their success. But if these protests are sustained and this pressure is piled up and continues, I mean, who knows, we might see politicians bowing down. I mean, nothing is impossible. If people decide to achieve something and they come up with a plan, with a reasonable plan, and with, with proper organisation, change can be achieved. We asked Wasim, given the track record of the government since the 1990s, able to weather crisis after crisis, won't this just end in the same way? 
this is definitely something to take into consideration. But we should also remember that the protests this time are very different from before on many levels. First, they are spontaneous. This time we have no obvious leaders. They are nationwide protests. People came from different classes. We have the middle class, we have the poorer classes, and many of those who took to streets were basically the supporters of the political parties. In addition to that, people have risen above the sectarian divide. So this Sunni-Shia divide we've been hearing about for a decade or for 15 years now, and uh, uh, the one that politicians are trying to convince us that it is primordial and it can never be bridged, has just disappeared within few hours or few days. This shows that it would be much more difficult for the government to co-opt or to use its traditional tactic of playing the sectarian card to divide and to uh, uh, destroy this movement. But still, the government has the army. It is more, I would say it is more difficult for the government now to get rid of these protests. This makes it imperative on the protesters to, first of all, provide a specific set of demands and to kind of come up with a leadership or with coordination committees that could coordinate these protests. If, at least in the short term, overthrowing all the political parties doesn't prove possible, what else can the protesters do? The leaderless, spontaneous movement that's brought thousands to the street also now needs to figure out what it wants, assess what politicians are doing and whether it's meeting those demands. We are hearing very broad demands, like down with the regime. But what does, I mean, in Lebanon, what does down with the regime mean? Uh, I think it is very necessary to come up with clear demands. Um, the fall of the government uh, would be followed by uh, consultations. The president has to do consultations. And I mean, it's the same MPs who represent the same political class, who have the power to nominate a new government. And a new government has to win the confidence of parliament. And the parliament, again, is representative of the same ruling class against which people are uh, protesting. So all this should be taken into consideration. What is more efficient to pressure the government, the current government, to achieve reforms or to pressure this government to resign and bring a new government and pressure the new government to achieve these reforms. Political sources have told Lebanese media that the government is looking at resigning and installing a group of technocrats. A lot will depend on who that includes, who leads it, and what fixes they try and make. No matter what politicians call their cabinet, it's clear today that without substantive action, the people on the streets won't be satisfied with proposals unless they're serious. This standoff could lead to a protracted crisis. And if it does, the economic situation is only likely to get worse. I'm James Haynes-Young, and this was Beyond the Headlines. Thanks this week to Mona Harb in Beirut and Wasim Rue in Edinburgh. Hit subscribe in your podcast app to get all the latest episodes of Beyond the Headlines. And if you have time to review us, that would also be great. Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison produced this week's episode with help from Hannah Finity. I'm Irvin Welsh. I am Bryn Terbell. Hi, this is Ariana Huffington. I'm Ian Rankin. I'm Alexander McCall Smith. And these are the And these are the books of my life. Books of my life. And these are the books of my life. 
I'm Rupert Hawksley, arts and culture writer at The National, and I'd like to invite you to join me and some brilliant guests as we talk about all things books. The books they love, the books they hate, the books that made them cry, and the books that have had the biggest impact on their lives. Interviews with, among others, Ariana Huffington, Alexander McCall-Smith, and Irvin Welsh will be available from October the 30th. You can subscribe today by finding Books of My Life on your favourite podcast app. We'd love to hear from you, too, about the books that have amused, confused, or even changed you. This is a conversation, so email us at booksofmylife at thenational.ae.